Hi, everyone. This week's episode of the Common Ground podcast is a special one. We're going to play for you an event hosted at the Howenstein Center in partnership with Grand Valley State University's Division of Inclusion and Equity that commemorated the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. On January 17th of this year, two prominent writers and commentators, Nicole Hannah-Jones of the New York Times and Jason Riley of the Wall Street Journal, met at the Howenstein Center in front of a packed audience of students, faculty, and members of the community for a dialogue about race and the American dream. The central aim of the conversation was to explore the progress that has been made since the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, as well as the challenges that continue to exist in the pursuit of a more equitable society. The dialogue was compelling as well as enlightening, so we post it here for podcast listeners to enjoy. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. As you, you might guess, uh, I'm Kyle Caldwell. I'm not the nationally renowned speaker that, that were previously introduced. Uh, I'm proud to be your uh, moderator for this conversation. Uh, two uh, important uh, caveats to our conversation. One is that um, our speakers have come to talk about uh, a wide variety of views, and you can imagine that they may not be the same views. That's the whole point of the Common Ground conversation. We're going to uh, host uh, a conversation between our two uh, guests today, and then we will do um, Q&A in the audience, and as was pointed out earlier, there'll be cards available for you to have uh, time to write down your, your questions. Um, Glees Whitney, uh, I, I don't quote Glees a lot, but one of the, his best quotes that I love is, is the instruction to the audience in, in rooms like this where he, he makes it a point to say, please form your statement in the form of a question. So if you have a question, please be very, see, it's, it's brilliant. Um, so as you think about the questions, please be concise and brief, that allow for, for more dialogue. And of course, um, th this is a, uh, a room of friends and we are Midwest nice, if, if nothing else. So I know that uh, the conversations will be uh, soft and polite uh, as we go through this very important conversation. Uh, we have two important guests here, both New Yorkers who have come to, to visit us. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones is an award-winning investigative reporter covering racial injustice for the New York Times Magazine, where she has spent five years investigating the way that racial segregation in housing and schools is maintained through official action as well as policy. She's won several national awards, including the Peabody Award, the George Polk Award, the Sigma Delta Chi Award for Public Service, and the Hedinger Grand Prize for Distinguished Education and Reporting. And she was a finalist for the National Magazine Award. She's been named Journalist of the Year for the National Association of Black Journalists, and is also named to the Route 100. Uh, she is a 2017 uh, uh, New America Fellow, and she's the author of Living Apart, How uh, Government Betrayed uh, a landmark civil rights law. Before joining the New York Times, her reporting was also a feature in ProPublica, The Atlantic Magazine, Huffington Post, and many others. She has been a guest on uh, Face the Nation, This American Life, NPR, and the Tom Joyner Morning Show, as well as many others. She's uh, received and earned a bachelor's degree in history and African American studies from the University of Notre Dame, go Irish. And she has a master's degree from, I'm just saying, <laughs> master's degree from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in the School of Journalism and Mass Communications. Welcome. Thank Thanks you. for being here. 
Uh, Jason Riley is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He is a member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board and a commentator for Fox News, where he's appeared more than, for more than a decade. He must have started in high school. <laughs> After joining the journal in 1994, he was named senior educational writer uh, in 2000 and a member of the editorial board in 2005. In 2008, he published Let Them In, which argues for a free market orientation to US immigration policy. And his second book, Please Stop Helping Us, which is about the track record of government and its efforts to help black underclass was published in 2014. He joined the Manhattan Institute in 2015. Born in Buffalo, New York, Mr. Riley earned his bachelor's degree in English from the State University of New York at Buffalo. Please, uh, first off, join me in welcoming our two speakers. So I just want to start out our conversation just trying to orient us uh, and all of our uh, participants in the audience um, with how you came to um, this work and your experience and how did they, your work in journalism, you both are fact and storytellers, people who, who find issues and bring, bring them to life in words and print. How did you come to this work and, and how did race relations become a core body of your work? And Nicole, I'd love to start with you. Okay, hi everyone. Hi. <laughs> I'm also from the Midwest, so I can be Midwest nice, though, not all the time. <laughs> um, so I, I probably, like Jason, I actually loved news at a, from a very young age. I read my newspaper. I think I started subscribing to Time Magazine as a middle school student. I was always fascinated by the news, and I was always fascinated by history, because I was always curious to understand the world that I saw. Uh, I grew up in Waterloo, Iowa. I grew up on the east side of town, which was where um, black people had to live when they came up through the migration. Um, very early on, noticed segregation, noticed the way people lived on my side of town compared to the way that uh, our white neighbors lived on the other side of the town. And I wanted to understand why that was. So um, I was curious. I read everything that I could. I talked to my parents. And um, starting in second grade, I was bused in a school desegregation program to white schools on the other side of town. And when I went to high school, uh, I started taking my first black studies course. And it opened my eyes. And I, I went in and complained to my black studies teacher one day that um, our school newspaper never wrote about kids like me, the kids who rode on the bus every day, who came from the other side of town, black kids. And he told me if I didn't like it, I needed to join the newspaper or I needed to shut up and not complain about it anymore. So uh, that's what I did. I joined the paper and uh, I had a column which was called From the African Perspective. And I remember one of my early columns was whether Jesus was black or not. Um, <laughs> did not reach a conclusion on that one. Um, but very, really felt at that point the, the power of being able to tell stories of kids like myself and my community. Um, and ever since that moment, I was kind of hooked, so. Jason, how did you come to journalism we, 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 early on? And, and, and what were the, you know, the, the foundations that formed the way that you think about journalism? Uh, well, thank you all for inviting me uh, uh, today. I, I appreciate the invitation. Um, I, I'm a journalist because I have no other marketable skills. <laughs> um, that's the bottom line. Um, I, I wanted to uh, study economics in, in college. Um, 
and uh, perhaps become an academic of some kind. Um, I got to second year calculus in college and realized this was not going to happen. Um, <laughs> I happened to go to a school that placed a heavy emphasis on, on math uh, in its uh, economics curriculum. And um, uh, so I did what a lot of kids I imagine still do, which is I, I migrated to a discipline that came much easier, and that was writing. It always had. And, um, and I had a similar story um, in that, uh, although it happened in college instead of high school, I read something in the college paper and uh, went down to complain and was invited to join the paper and did. Mm -hmm. um, between my sophomore and junior year in college, or I should say between my junior and senior year in college, I got an internship with USA Today on the sports page, which was a very big deal um, back then. That was the reason you read USA Today, frankly. <laughs> um, and uh, so I took that. And by the end of the summer, I was convinced um, that I wanted to be, wanted to be a journalist, um, which made the senior year of college very long. Um, I did not initially uh, see myself writing about race, primarily. Um, I had things to say about race, um, but it, I didn't imagine it would be the focus of my, of my journalism. Um, I, I had developed more conservative views in college, discovered certain writers that had a huge impact on me. And when I had something to say about race, I would write about it in the paper. But I sort of thought, uh, as, as, as a professional journalist, this was all covered already. And at the time, there were a number of black thinkers. They weren't necessarily conservatives. That This was the late 80s, early 90s. They were challenging the old civil rights orthodoxy at the time. Uh, you had old timers like Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams out there who were economists. But you also had um, people like Glenn Lowry and Shelby Steele and and back then, even people like William Julius Wilson and Orlando Patterson and um, Stephen Carter, uh, iconoclastic writers like Stanley Crouch, um, they were all out there. They were saying unorthodox things at the time. Randall Kennedy, a law professor at Harvard, was another one. Some of them have since moved left or, or become less prominent public intellectuals. Um, Kennedy comes to mind uh, in terms of someone who's really moved back left from the center where he was in the mid-90s. But my thinking at the time was this ground is covered. I don't, it would be very hard for me to distinguish myself here. I'm, I'm going to write about other things, and when I want to weigh in on race, I will. Um, and that was pretty much my attitude for the good first 15 years of my professional life as a journalist at the Wall Street Journal. My first book, as was mentioned, was about immigration, um, which just happened to be a topic that I covered for the Wall Street Journal editorial page for many years, and then decided to turn it into a book. Uh, people would always ask me, why did you choose immigration? It was, I just found it interesting. Um, I didn't really have a dog in the fight. I wasn't an immigrant. I wasn't a child of immigrants. Um, but I found it fascinating as covering it as a journalist and decided to, um, to write a book about it. And I thought that's what I would do throughout my career, find something interesting and write about it. Um, and then a lot of these guys that I had admired in terms of their um, their thoughts and views on racial issues were getting up there in age. And I didn't see a younger generation of people coming along to replace them. And it, it disturbed me, because I thought 
that uh, a lot of what they were saying was still true. It still needed to be part of the debate. And uh, I was a little dismayed that uh, there wasn't a crop of, of, of younger writers who were willing to take on some of these arguments. And uh, that's when I decided to write the second book. And the second book is what led me to devote uh, myself almost full time to, uh, to writing on, on these issues. So it was uh, not as direct a, a route, I, I should say, in terms of writing about race in my experience. So, so we understand how you, how you both sort of come to this work more, more generally. The conversation that we've, we've asked you to be a part of here is race and the American dream and how the, uh, complicated issues and these issues have become increasingly more complicated. I think uh, Glee's uh, sort of uh, teed up that, that there is a, a heightened sense of this issue right now in, in this uh, uh, post-Obama presidency and coming into, into the Trump presidency. But more, more intimately here, we have a community that's interested in a conversation about race and the American dream. How would you, how would you characterize race and the American dream? How would you and implore people to think about this, and how should we think about the dialogue that we need to have? Have you thought about that? Do you want me to go first? Yeah, yeah. Please. Uh, hmm. I mean, for most of our country, I think race and the American dream have been oppositional forces. Um, the black presence in this country has always been the presence that bears a lie to this notion that America was um, an exceptional place. So I think uh, if you look at my Twitter handle, I say I, I write about race from 1619 because that was when the first Africans were brought to this country to be enslaved, which is long before we even become a country, we have already decided that we are going to designate certain people in the bottom of caste in this country. So um, there's no point in our history where race is not that shadow over this democracy. And um, we have moments where we move forward and we have moments where we move backward. And I think many people feel uh, we're in one of those backward uh, motions when it comes to race. So I'm, I'm not really sure how to answer the question. Um, because when I, when I think about what is the American dream and what is that meant for black Americans, I think for black Americans it is simply meant being treated equally in a country of your birth. And I think for white Americans, it probably means something very different. How do you, how do you wrestle oh, with this question of race in the American I, I think the, um, the American dream is alive and well um, for blacks in particular in this country. I think uh, tremendous progress has been made. Um, uh, a twice elected black president is leaving office. I think that is a, a sign of tremendous progress. Thanks in part to um, the man whose birthday we, we honored yesterday, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 in particular, I think, was a hugely important piece of legislation enfranchising um, millions of Americans, making us a more perfect union. Um, are there barriers that remain in place, racial and otherwise? Certainly. But I, I think a tremendous amount of, uh, of progress has been made. Uh, and, uh, and I think 
today, um, going forward, the real focus should be on, in terms of black Americans, uh, readying themselves to take advantage of the opportunities that are now out there because of the work of civil rights pioneers like um, Martin Luther King. I think that is the real uh, challenge going forward. But I think many, if not most, of the uh, important battles in terms of civil rights were fought and won um, by the right side a long time ago. Could I interject on that? Please. I'm assuming that's why y'all have us here anyway. Um, <laughs> it's a dialogue. So, I mean, one, it's interesting that you would bring up the Voting Rights Act because we know that a uh, key provision of the Voting Rights Act was struck down uh, by the Supreme Court. We know that there has been a flurry of voter suppression laws that are being and have been challenged in the courts. Um, we know that in terms of housing segregation in many northern cities, it has not budged since 1968 and 1970 that uh, black Americans are still the most segregated group of people in the country, both by race and by class. And regardless of income, um, black children are in uh, majority black schools at rates we haven't seen since 1972. So I think, yeah, of course there has been progress, but I think to say that progress for black folks is enough when we are nowhere near equality or parity. When you look at the unemployment rate, um, black Americans still have twice the unemployment rate of white Americans. And these are black people who are looking for work and cannot find work. In every measure in the society, black Americans are still at the bottom of every single measure. And so I would never argue that we don't have progress. My father was born on a sharecropping farm in Mississippi during legal apartheid. I'm sitting on this stage right now. But when you look at the experiences of the masses of black Americans, particularly poor black Americans, in many ways it looks very similar to, to what we saw when I was a child. So Jason, um, we live in the same country and we've had now two, two descriptions, yours and, and Nicole's in the same country. Are, are, are both pictures true? Do we have great optimism? Do we have great opportunity and great challenges as we think of race in America? Well, I, I said in my remarks that challenges remain, but I, the question is whether progress has been made. And uh, with respect to the American dream, whether or not it's a, alive and well in this country, and I maintain that it is. Um, and again, I think that the real challenge uh, for blacks going forward in terms of closing racial disparities that we'd all like to see closed is uh, to take advantage of, of, these, um, of these opportunities that exist. But I don't, these are different challenges from what Dr. King was uh, facing, I believe. Um, a fundamentally unjust society, legal discrimination, Jim Crow, um, and also virulent racist attitudes among his fellow Americans. That too has changed over the decades, and that too has moved in the right direction. Um, in addition to striking down um, the legal barriers that, uh, that existed, uh, thanks to efforts of King and Thurgood Marshall and others. Um, uh, I, I, you know, the characterizations of whether, I assume voter suppression laws or voter ID laws, is that what you're referring to when you say voter suppression? Yes. Yeah, well, um, in 2012, uh, a higher percentage of blacks in America voted than whites. 
um, even in states with the strictest voter, voter ID laws in the country. If uh, voter ID laws are the equivalent of voter suppression, you know, where's the evidence? Um, polls have shown that a majority of blacks favor voter ID laws in this country, along with a majority of whites, and a majority of liberals, and a majority of conservatives, and a majority of, of Democrats, and a majority of Republicans. Um, but if you want to characterize it as voter suppression, you know, I think some people might disagree with that, with that characterization. Um, so I, I, again, there, there are barriers that remain in place. I'm, I'm not sure I would identify the same barriers as my colleague. Um, I think you, you mentioned um, segregation in schools, um, which often comes up. Segregation in schools. There's this abiding belief that um, my children need to be sitting next to white kids in order to learn in school. I reject that. There have long been majority black schools in this country since Reconstruction that did an excellent job of teaching black kids. And they remain today. Some of the best public schools in this country are entirely black and brown. Some of them exist in the city where we both live, New York, in Harlem, or the South Bronx, or Brooklyn. Majority black schools outperforming the lilius white suburbs uh, in New York City. Um, this idea that the focus should be on the racial makeup of the school and not whether anyone is learning, I reject. Um, I am not obsessed with the racial makeup of the school. I'm obsessed at the performance, the performance of the school. And I think our policymakers would do better to focus uh, on that. So Nicole, you've written on, on education opportunities. So give, give, me the, give me the framework that you would have us think about with regard to access to education or race in America and how education is a, an overlay to this conversation. So here's what we know. Yes, there are exceptional schools, just like there are exceptional people. But exceptions and pointing out uh, the handful, the literal handful in any community of majority black schools that can sustainably compete with uh, affluent white schools. Handful? There are dozens in New York City alone. Name, name. The Harlem Success Academy Network consists of dozens of schools that regularly outperform neighborhood schools. Right, but let, my question is, is that the exception or the rule in New you York said public a handful. School? I just named is a that, dozens in New York is City. Is that the exception or the rule? Right, it's, this is the it's thing. It's the rule can, in New York City. There's, here's what we know, so They one, regularly outperform neighborhood schools. I've been covering- I was worried about the other. Right, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> I've so, been covering school segregation me, for 10 years. Yeah, let me hear your I've poured through. I've poured through data compiled by the US Department of Education. Here's what it shows. The more heavily black or Latino a school is, the less likely that school is to have qualified teachers to offer college prep curriculum, advanced placement curriculum, to have up-to-date facilities, to have technology across the board in any community in this country. Yes, there are exceptional schools, but you would be dishonest to say that that is the rule. What we also know is that to, when you are uh, separating kids not only by race and class, that creates a toxic learning environment. It does not mean, of course, that 
any child, black child, has to sit next to a white child to be smart. My own child is in an all-black school. I live in an all-black neighborhood. So clearly, I would never say that a black child can't be smart or cannot achieve if they are not in uh, a class with white children. What we do know, though, is from the founding of public education in this country, resources follow white children. That we have not, on scale, ever provided the same education to black children in segregated schools that we have provided to white children. That's just the fact. There are um, 60 years of educational data that shows that. And I've been doing research going back to the 1700s when we founded public schools in this country, and that simply is not true. So well, well, again, let me give you uh, a report. Okay. And then, okay. And then I'll then just want, make a point on the resources following the school argument, following the resources following the white children argument, because that is that has long been made. That hasn't been an, a serious issue since the 60s. I how, believe, how has that not been a serious issue since the 60s? Because of Title I funding and how it has balanced out uh, the funding uh, discrepancy that previously existed. And so, to the point where today, if you go to majority black cities like Newark, Washington, D.C., um, and many others, you will see per pupil spending way above not only the state average, but the national average. Um, so, the, so the children in our inner cities are not suffering because not, money is not being spent on their education. Uh, they're suffering because they tend to be in poor quality schools. They're in poor quality schools not because we don't know how to educate them. We do know how to educate them because there are high performing uh, all black schools all over the country. Those schools have problems scaling up because of political pressure, which comes primarily from teachers unions who don't want schools to open where they cannot organize the teachers. So in New York City, you have 40-something thousand kids on wait lists for charter schools. And the mayor won't budge because the mayor of New York City takes a lot of money from teachers unions. And he's doing their bidding, not the, the parents of those black kids on the waiting list. So this is not about not knowing how to educate the kids. It's not a funding issue. It's about political will. That is what is going on in public education. So let so me just, let me one say, when I talk this about- point and then okay. I want to move on to another one when we get to When it. I talk about resources, I'm not simply talking about dollars. Let me, let me state the data again. When we look at teacher quality, teacher experience, one, that's the largest resources in the classroom. Black children are the least likely to have an experienced, credentialed teacher in the classroom who is actually credentialed to teach in the subject that he or she is teaching. That's not about dollars, that is about resources. In a pool of limited um, credentialed teachers, those teachers are not going into black schools. This is, again, data that any of you can look up if you go to um, Why the civil rights at the US Department of Education. Why aren't they going into those schools? Well, you'll have to poll the teachers on that. What we know is that it's true in every community, whether that community is a small community in the South, whether it is a major city. You can't have this uniformly happening across the country, and it's not for a systemic reason. We understand that Brown v. Board of Education understood that in order for black children in an in educational system built on racial caste to receive the same things as white children, they were going to have to be in the same vicinity as white children. That has always been the case. It is not about what makes a child smart or not. And what I find interesting is we know that in neighborhoods, concentration of poverty is not good. We know that it has long-term effects on health. We know it has long-term effects on prosperity. 
The same thing happens in a classroom. You can talk to any teacher in a classroom. If you have five kids who are living in poverty, five kids in a classroom of 25 who are behind, it's much easier to manage that than if you have every single child in that classroom is poor and every single child in that classroom is behind. That's common sense. We also know from research from social scientists all over this country that that concentrated poverty in classroom makes it very difficult for the teacher to teach and for those children to learn. We know that it's not good to have that in neighborhoods. I don't know why we pretend that somehow when it comes to schools that that doesn't matter. It absolutely does. The other thing I would say about resources, my daughter's school is 90% uh, free and reduced lunch. The parents in that school live in public housing except for about 8% of us parents who don't. One mile away is the most a very affluent school in Brooklyn. That PTA can raise a million dollars. They can fund all kinds of things in that school that my daughter's school can never fund. But more so, if a child in that school wants to apply to Harvard, there's parents in that school who can write a recommendation, who can help that child get a job. There's no parents in my daughter's school who can do that. So it's all of these things outside of whether you can have the same dollar amount, uh, that matter. And I think that when we discount those things, we're not being realistic. I don't believe that your children are in an all-black poor school. Maybe they are. Maybe when you had children, they were in those schools. But I think all of us understand that if we have a choice, we don't enroll our children in schools like That's that. That's the point. And to pretend poor that black that people don't to, have school choice. To pretend that that is somehow okay and not a problem for those parents, I think is dishonest. So let's, let's dig into, um, I think we've got clear lines of demarcation on, on the argument. <laughs> So what I'm interested in now... It, I'll bring my Midwest nights back. I think one of the important parts of this is to feel very comfortable with differences of opinion and feel comfortable with hard conversations. I think that's, that's really what Common Ground is all about. So I, I, don't, wanna, I don't want to uh, at, at all try to nicen up the conversation. What I'm trying to figure out is what I'm hearing are... Um, two people looking at the same problem with different points of view, but nobody's saying that these kids shouldn't have a great opportunity for a great education. So I'm wondering what are the common ground? What are the places where there are ways to think about um, this particular example of education and race and opportunity and ways of thinking that this audience and others ought to be thinking about going forward? given the data points that you all have provided, which all are accurate, but point to very different parts of the problem. How should we think about common ground on this? Well, is there I, I think there's ground? wide agreement that black children, particularly low-income black children, are stuck in the worst performing schools in America. And the question is what we should be doing about it. Um, I'm not obsessed over the racial makeup of these schools. I'm obsessed with the quality of these schools, and I want to scale up high-quality schools. And the reason we don't scale up high-quality schools is because there is resistance from entities that control public schools in this country, namely teachers' unions and the, and the, and the um, politicians that they support. And so the, the, the barrier to school reform is not racism. It's politics. And I'm not really sure that I would point to the problems of schooling for inner city kids as primarily a racial issue. 
it's primarily an issue of political will. And you have various entities in place, special interests, protecting their own special interests. And, and I think that is what has led to the, to the situation that we have today. And yes, we need to do something about it. But I don't think a focus on desegregating the schools is the answer. So we have one point. In other words, if, if white people don't want to sit next to my children in school, I'm fine with that as long as my kid is attending a high quality school. That's my priority. I would assume, Nicole, you, you might have a common ground space, but a different issue on how to attack the problem. Yeah, I, I mean, the common ground is I agree, it is political will. I think political will to do what is where we don't agree. Um, what we know from uh, data going back that's collected by the Department of Ed going back to um, about 1970 is that there's one school reform that has closed the achievement gap, one on scale, and that's integration. That at the peak of, of school integration in this country, that is when the black-white achievement gap was the narrowest. And as we have seen schools um, going away from integration, that gap has widened, and we've never gone back to that narrow point of 1988 at the peak of integration. There are a host of school reform. And I think it should be clear, I um, started as an education reporter right after No Child Left Behind was passed in a segregated, majority black district. and. I was watching as all of these schools that were 90, 95, 98% poverty, almost entirely black, were trying every school reform known to man. Charter schools, uh, small high schools, they were um, doing early college high schools, middle college program, international baccalaureate, they would fire principals, they would fire teachers, and they might be able to get progress for a year or two and then they would go back. There's never, we have never been able to produce the school reform that has worked on scale for black children. We just haven't, except for integration. But I also think what's important is that um, Brown v. Board never mentions test scores. Brown v. Board talks about full citizenship. And the longitudinal data shows that school integration for black children doesn't just help with their test scores. It actually changes the entire trajectories of their lives. The black children who have the opportunity to go to integrated schools, and mind you, we are in a majority white country, so to somehow pretend that being isolated in schools uh, away from all the people who are power brokers in this country is not going to harm kids. I think that that's just, that's not saying. We both have worked in majority white institutions and gone to majority white institutions, and we understand that that means you have access to power. But what the longitudinal data shows is that um, black children who've gone to integrated schools are less likely to be poor. They are more likely to go to college and to graduate from college. They live longer, they're healthier, and they pass those benefits on to their own children. And that, that is, holds true even within the same family. So two siblings who are measured, and um, Rucker Johnson, who's an economist out of Cal Berkeley, actually followed, was able to follow families for 40 years, and to find out that with, even within the same household, if one child, black child, went to a segregated school and one went to an integrated school, that that actually change the trajectories of both of their lives, that the child who went to integrated schools had better life outcomes. So we're not just talking about test scores or how well a kid can do on a school. We're talking about giving black children actually access to full citizenship. And that's what works. I would say the lack of political will, the lack of political will to actually do that one reform that we know works. Um, you have to ask yourself if there's one tool that data that sociological research um, has shown works. Why is that the one tool that we never want to talk about? That's not because of teachers' unions. 
So let's let's move off education for a minute because I, I want to get us back to the, the larger conversation about race and the American dream. So this conversation has, has really allowed us to drill down deep in a subject to, to find out what the demarcations are and differences are and, and hopefully what common ground. But I'm wondering how do we how should we all be thinking about some of the challenges, the other challenges of race in America and th th that create um, both barriers and hopefully opportunities to address the achievement of, of, of the American dream. What other areas of, of race should we be thinking about, especially now, as we're, as you pointed out, coming into a sort of a the post first African-American president, there, there is a lot that uh, many are saying, uh, reflecting on his legacy, reflecting on you know this idea of a post-racial America. How should we be thinking about other opportunities where we can deal with race and deal with it in, a, in, in common ground? Well, I would go back to uh, something I, I, I talked about briefly earlier, which is that um, closing disparities, racial disparities that we see today, I think will involve um, blacks taking it upon themselves to take advantage of the opportunities that are out there today. And I think that um, a lot of the barriers to that group advancement are cultural. And that's something we don't spend a lot of time talking about. I mentioned two sociologists earlier, um, William Julius Wilson and Orlando Patterson, two of the nation's foremost sociologists. They're both at, at Harvard now, I believe. But William Julius Wilson was at the University of Chicago for many years previously. Um, they've, they've written about how their field, academics in their field, um, are so reluctant, refuse even, to talk about how certain black cultural traits, particularly in the inner city, have led to these negative outcomes that we see today. Sociologists don't even want to talk about it. They don't want to go there. They want to talk about bad schools or housing, but they do not want to talk about culture. It's taboo. And both of them agree this is absolutely ridiculous. We have to have these conversations. This is a major barrier. And I think that's something, um, even as a commentator, it gets you into a lot of trouble when you talk about that. You're blaming the victim. You're letting whites off the hook. Uh, you're ignoring the racism that still exists out there. But I think not talking about that, not dealing with it, is not going to um, help the problem go away anytime soon. I think it is something that we need to discuss. And I think that is a major, major barrier to people taking advantage of the opportunities that are out there. I'll give you a, a statistic just to illustrate what I'm talking about. Um, if you look at the, the poverty gap in America between blacks and whites, uh, it's been widened over the past decade. It's starting to narrow somewhat now. Um, it's a huge gap. Among black married couples, however, the black poverty rate is in the single digits and has been for more than 20 years. So is the black-white poverty gap a function of racism writ large? Or is it a function of the makeup of a family, regardless of your race? That, that's just one example of what I'm talking about in terms of us wanting to drag race into a lot of discussions to explain racial disparities. 
or I don't think racism is a sufficient explanation of this racial disparity. So, so let me uh, turn the call over to you to, to sort of, you may certainly respond if you like, but I also want you to kind of help us think about how race defines some of the challenges that we're dealing with just as a nation, not just uh, race for African Americans or, or race for individuals. How is race uh, characterized, characterizing our achievement or barrier for, for the American dream? Is it, is it similar to what Jason was talking about or is it, do you see it as something different? I do not think it's similar to what Jason was talking about. Um, I clearly reject the notion that there's something inherently flawed in poor black culture uh, that has led to disparity. I don't understand how one can study and understand the history of this country and think that. I don't think how one can understand uh, the sociology that shows that in every uh, step of the way, black Americans are facing discrimination and that somehow they are unable to overcome discrimination in job market, in housing, in schools, that that means that uh, it's simply a problem of culture. I would be interested if what is the problem with white culture that we need to be worrying about? What is the problem with white culture that continues to allow prejudice and inequality to fester? If we're going to talk about culture, let's not just talk about the problem of black culture, because black people did not create ghettos. Black people did not bring themselves over here. Black people did not create Jim Crow laws. Black people did not create uh, housing segregation and school segregation in the North. This didn't come as a product of bad black culture. So of course I reject that. What I can tell you is my family is a very working class. Some of them would be considered the working poor. They go to work every day. They don't blame white people for their problems. They don't even think that large. Honestly, they're not looking. I look at the systems and the structures. They're not thinking about any of those things. Um, they don't know that I've read the studies about how if you apply for a job with a black name, you're less likely to get called back. They don't know that. They don't know the studies about if you call your congressperson and you sound black, you're less likely to get a call back. They don't know about um, that there are four million instances of housing discrimination that occur in this country every year. They don't know about any of those things. They just know that they're working and they can't get ahead, but they work hard every day. So I clearly reject that notion. Um, we are one generation out of legal apartheid in this country. I was born six years after this nation passed a law saying that you simply could not discriminate against black people if they wanted to buy a house. Six years after that law was passed, and that law only gets passed because Dr. King is assassinated in 100 urban ghettos in the North who were not being touched by the 64 Civil Rights Act or the 65 Civil Rights Act break out in riots. Six years after that. So to somehow pretend that one generation out of that, we are, we are responsible for the circumstances that we live in, I think, I, I think it's intentionally naive. I think it, 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 it I don't understand how, how one could believe that uh, black culture is to blame for that. And I actually take deep personal offense to that because, um, again, I see in my own family, I see in my daughter's school, I, I see people who work very hard every day, I see people who value education even when their children don't receive an education. They value it and they understand how important that is. Um, so when we think about what does the American dream mean for black people, it is always meant to simply be treated like a citizen of your own country, a full citizen of your own country. 
I don't think that that's true yet. I don't think you can look at um, black people who face discrimination in every facet mm -hmm. of life and then say you should just simply work harder and overcome that, and that is the fair society that we're asking for. So, um, I'm, I mean, I, I know that that's what you say, and I assume that's what no, you No, that's not believe. what I say. That's a total distortion um, of what I say. That's what I heard when you say that the problem is black culture. No, I said that sociologists, Wilson and Patterson, who I'm sure you're familiar with their work. I am. These are black sociologists lamenting the fact that their profession, their discipline, steers clear, consciously steers clear, of discussing how black culture plays a role in racial disparities. And they think that that is insane because it's so obvious that it does play a role. It's not an all-purpose explanation. But what they role wouldn't does argue white that culture it is. play in They the wouldn't argue that it is, and I wouldn't argue that it is, but it is a factor. I'll give you um, an anecdote. Um, a few years ago, I wrote a column quoting Dr. King. Um, he was speaking to a black congregation in St. Louis through the late 50s. And he said to the congregation, you know, we are 10% the population of St. Louis, but responsible for 58% of the crimes. He said, we've got to face that. We've got to do something about our morals. We can't keep on blaming the white man. He said, there are a lot of problems in the white world. There are a lot of problems in the white, in the black world too. And we've got to face that. I used that quote in the column. And some readers wrote in accusing me of making it up. Now, I thought this was odd because in this age of the internet, you can easily Google anything and pretty much find the source. And this particular quote came from a James Baldwin profile of King in 1961 issue of Harper's Magazine. But what really struck me about the reaction was that it seemingly these readers just could not conceive of a time when black leaders used to speak this frankly about personal behavior in the black community. It's just such a foreign concept to them that that's what top black leadership in America used to regularly do which might tell you a lot about black leadership today, frankly. But, um, but these readers just could not conceive of that. But this used to be, King was operating in a world, it's so different in terms of his expectations. His message was to black people, we need to succeed notwithstanding this racist society we live in. Today's black leadership seems to have flipped that on its head. Don't blame us for anything until racism has been vanquished from America. Racism is used as an all-purpose explanation for bad black outcomes in this country. And I don't think the data backs it up. So let me um, not avoid the tense moment that you two just presented with us, but let me move us to thinking about how then do we find a way to proceed? Because we can both have this picture of, of race, and I think that the, the story of Dr. King uh, that, that I'm glad you brought up was the fact that uh, not only could he talk about an aspiration for America that included, as he pointed out, 
the opportunity when his children can be uh, standing next to a, a white child with the same opportunity uh, was that he put together a very diverse coalition of people yes. who hence before were never together. So we have this opportunity now. What would you say to progressives, conservatives, moderates about how to deal with some of the challenges that we're seeing that however you want to come to the, the, the condition of race, that people should think about working together to deal with these? Because I don't know that we are in a point where we've found, as this, the theme of this talk talk, uh, talks about, common ground. So how would we speak to this wide, diverse political landscape that we have about how we deal with race? Either one of you. Ladies first. Oh, Sorry, gentlemen first. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm very dispirited right now about the sides coming together. Um, the, the developments uh, in the past few years uh, make me very pessimistic. And I'm, I'm normally optimistic, but um, again, getting back to King, King was all about color blindness. Don't look at the color of my skin. Don't pay attention to that. Pay attention to my character. We flipped that, we flipped that over today. We now have movements that focus on race consciousness. People who go around the country chanting, Black Lives Matter, are not interested in color blindness. People who go around promoting race-based college admissions or racially gerrymandered voting districts are not promoting race blindness, color blindness. They want race consciousness. We've been down this road before. Some people in this room are old enough to remember when the Black Power Movement broke off from King, went their own way, identity politics, it didn't end well. Not for the revolutionaries, and I would argue not for most of black America. I think King had it right. I think King had it right. And when we have diverged from that vision, uh, I don't think we've, 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 we've progressed. As much as we were progressing when we adhered to that vision, um, you mentioned the coalitions that King brought together, namely uh, other minority groups, Jewish groups in particular, were strong allies of the civil rights movement. Um, Post-King, once, once color blindness turned into color consciousness, a lot of the Jewish leaders parted ways. They did not want to go down that route. Uh, and I think that has been to the detriment of the civil rights movement in this country that that happened. Um, so I, I'm very pessimistic right now about where things are headed. I, I, I think this, this alt-right movement is the flip side of the Black Lives Matter movement. You've got black identity politics, you've got white identity politics. Two can play this game, but it gets very ugly very quickly. And, and I, I, uh, um, I wish it would stop. Uh, obviously, uh, both sides of the political aisle here are, uh, have their reasons for going this route, playing to this crowd or that crowd. But I, I think the rest of us as a country, our dialogue, our conversations are all the worse off when we go down this path. Go 
to uh, how do we bring broad, diverse political views together to, to deal with race in America? I mean, I don't know that we do. And I was telling you in the green room, um, when one of the things you wanted us to think about was how do we find common ground on this issue? I, I think I was having a hard time figuring out how we do that. And um, that version of King you presented, of course, is the homogenized version of King. It is not the post-1965 King. Uh, the coalition that King had built with white Northerners and progressives began to fall apart as soon as he took his movement north. And he stopped challenging Jim Crow laws in the South, but began to challenge housing segregation and school segregation in the North. That is when he saw that coalition and support among uh, progressive whites begin to fracture. That is when you saw um, the Coalition for Civil Rights outside of King among progressive whites begin to fracture. That is why the Fair Housing Act doesn't get passed until 1968 after King died, because northern white congressmen blocked that, because it was a northern civil rights law that was going to bring integration to northern cities. So what we also know about King is that King talked about uh, redistribution of wealth. He basically made the case for reparations based on black Americans uh, being deprived of the right to earn the same as white people and to have the same opportunities both in housing, jobs, and schools. We know that his, um, he was not asking for a colorblind society until we could make up for the past, and he was hoping we would eventually get there. This wasn't a naive man. He understood that the entire history of our country had been based on race consciousness, and that black, the black predicament that he was trying to fight, not just in the South, he was not simply fighting legal apartheid in the South. He was also fighting uh, segregation that occurred in the North. Uh, he understood that you were going to have to do something to catch black people up. You couldn't simply pass a law and say, from here on forth, we're not going to discriminate anymore, and pretend that that would somehow even the playing field. 300 years of black Americans de being deprived of the right to their own labor, of being deprived of the right to earn, of being deprived of the right to build wealth through home ownership, is not going to suddenly be made up because we've passed a law that said you can't discriminate. And Dr. King understood that. And if you read his later writings, um, when he started to lose his white support and when he, when he died, the majority of white Americans did not support him, then you understood that, that he did know that. That, of course, we all would like to get to the point in this country where no one sees race. But clearly, just pretending race doesn't exist does not make it go away. You cannot look at every single indicator of well-being and people who look black and who are perceived as black in this country at their bottom of every single indicator of well-being and then pretend that if we simply just didn't talk about race anymore, it would not be a problem. The problem would cease to exist. You talk about um, race-based admissions. We know that we have a segregated K-12 system that provides an inadequate and inferior education to Latino and black students. But then suddenly, we, when we get to college admissions, we believe in the merit system. What's a merit system for a student who is going to a class, a, a high school that has 14 AP classes, nationally board certified teachers, compared to the black kid who can't even get a chemistry class, who wants to be a doctor? I wrote about that kid last year. Then all of a sudden, we want to believe that race doesn't matter. I think if any people in this country would like race to cease to exist, it is clearly black people. But we're not there yet, and we can't simply wish it away. So we have a couple uh, questions from the audience. And I, I want everyone to, to feel free to continue to, to write questions. 
So let me just sort of channel these and then either one of you can take those questions. Is that great? So um, what are your thoughts on the voters who supported Obama in 08 and 12 and then supported Trump in 16, right? So you knew you're going to get to the Trump question. We talked <laughs> about the, that in the green room. What, what does that tell you about the vote? What does that tell you about? Well, um, as was mentioned in the opening remarks, uh, most journalists got the election wrong. I was among them. I was not a supporter of Trump. Uh, I didn't think he was going to win. Um, uh, and I was surprised, along with uh, not only a lot of my colleagues, but a lot of the country, uh, that he did win. Um, I think one of the reasons he won, the main reason he won, I think, is because um, people wanted to upset the apple cart in Washington. I, I think a lot of us in the media in particular, and in the elite mainstream media in particular, um, were overly focused on Trump's tone and temperament throughout the campaign as being disqualifying, um, as attacks on other politicians, um, his Twitter uh, uh, fits and, and, and so forth. We kept saying, this is just behavior on becoming a president. It's disqualifying. America will not go for it. But they did. And I think what those voters who voted for Trump were saying to people like me is, Jason, um, I haven't had a vacation in five years. My health care costs have gone up, even though people told me they were going to go down. Um, uh, I'm underemployed. Uh, I haven't had a raise. Um, you worry about Trump's tone and temperament. You have that luxury. I don't. This guy sounds like he can mix things up. Um, I know what I'm getting with Clinton. It's the status quo, and the status quo isn't doing for me. It's just not doing it for me. I'll roll the dice on this guy. I think that's why he won. And he won, uh, one person, a demographer, said he won the areas of the country that keep our lights on and keep our motors running, um, which I thought was a very fitting description and not a description of where I live <laughs> or where a lot of my colleagues in the media live, frankly. Um, the other narrative out there is that he won, he won because um, racist voters put him over the top. But I think, to your point, that doesn't explain it. He won because he flipped Obama voters. Iowa went for Obama. Obama won Iowa easily in 2012. Trump won it easily in November. Did Iowa suddenly turn racist over the past four years? Trump did this in county after county. He did it in Wisconsin. He did it in Michigan. He did it over and over again. He flipped Obama voters, and that's why I think he won, ultimately. So what's your, what's your picture on this? So I actually wrote a story about Iowa, my home state, because it did go for Obama in uh, 08. It went for Obama in 12. and. I like to say we're the reason Obama got elected because it was a rural white state that showed, you know, it could vote for a black guy. Though I also say uh, Iowa has caucuses and it was a Democratic caucus, so it wasn't a statewide vote, and I think that that played a big role. Um, so a couple of things. The problem about the economic argument 
because it doesn't work for working class people who aren't white. So if you're only going to say that it was economic anxieties that led people to vote for Trump, then he should have gotten black voters and he should have gotten Latino voters. And clearly, uh, black voters, again, unemployment rate is more than twice that of white. Um, economic anxieties for all of these Midwestern cities. I didn't see a lot of reporters going to Gary talking to those working class folks. We have a very distinct narrative about who the working class are, particularly the working class we need to be concerned about. So it, it can't simply just be economic anxieties, or he should have also gotten the working class black vote and a middle class black vote, which he didn't. Trump also won across, uh, for white voters, he won across all income levels. And I think like the median income for his voters was 65, 70,000. These are not poor and working class white voters. So I think we should dispel that myth. Um, the other thing I, I reported and what I, what I talked about is that because someone has once voted for a black man does not mean that that person has no racial animosity or anxiety. We tend to talk about race and racism in this country in a very uncomplex, unnuanced way. Either you are in the Klan or you love like the rainbow of everyone. And, and that's just not how it works, right? Most people are falling somewhere in between and they can be tipped. Um, you have to understand, when, when people are voting in, in 2008, we are coming off of eight years of the Bush presidency. You have um, the big auto companies are on the brink of collapse. You have banks that are getting ready, that are getting ready to go under. We have double-digit unemployment rates for white folks, the kind of unemployment rates that black people have consistently. This is a time where there is so much anxiety that people are willing to take a chance on someone. Obama also runs a very good ground game. He goes into a lot of those communities that a lot of Democrats don't tend to go into. And so he's able to get rural white voters to vote for him because white voters are able to vote over their racial anxieties when they feel like it is in their best interest, just like all voters. In 2012, he loses some of those counties that had voted for him before. And you have to, I mean, I, I talk to people and I can tell you voters were saying, white voters and I were saying, yes, we like Trump's message. We didn't feel like we were living as good as we live, but that Black Lives Matter thing really pissed us off. Oh, sorry, C-SPAN. Um, <laughs> when President Obama mentioned Trayvon Martin, that made us mad. So they were saying one thing about economic anxieties, but they started to feel like, President Obama wasn't representing them when he began to talk specifically to black people. And that is, they didn't really want to put their lot in with black people in the first place. If you, un, if you think about, um, Obama doesn't, never won a majority of white voters, even though we like to pretend that he won a majority of white voters so we could call ourselves post-racial. He won on a coalition of voters where he got very high uh, votes from black, Latino, and Asian, and then he got a minority of the white vote and it was enough to put him over the top. So it's not like most white Americans ever voted for him in the first place. And those voters who voted on a sense of economic anxiety, it trumped their racial anxiety. This time, it did not. And I think that's the difference. But that we can somehow say that because someone once voted for a black man or has a black friend or once went to a movie with black people that they don't have racial anxiety, it's just, it's not true. It doesn't, it doesn't, I mean, I, I'm not trying to be funny, but it just doesn't work that way. Um, you, I talked to women who were like, you know, they work with Latinos and they're fine, but they want him to build the wall, right? They, they think that they believe in freedom of religion, but they want the Muslims to be on a registry and they don't want them let in. Like, people can hold these same views. It's what uh, Gunnar Murdoch called the American dilemma. 
is that we can believe on the one hand in equality, but act in very different ways. And that is as American as apple pie. And I think that is what we saw with Trump voters. The difference is, you know, black folks have economic anxiety, but when the other party is trying to take away, or at least you have the sense that the other party is trying to take away your very basic citizenship rights, you can't vote on economics. Black people didn't have that choice. And people in Gary and all of these factory towns in the Rust Belt that are heavily black, that have lost jobs, did not vote for Trump. And there's a reason for that. So let me move to a, a less controversial subject that the audience has today. <laughs> and this is for both of you, so you may choose which one to go first. Can you comment on the effects of constantly policing black and brown neighborhoods, hmm. the way it affects the residents and children and where they live? So a, a more lighthearted topic. <laughs> kind of help us think about. Well, I guess this boils down to why police spend so much time in these communities. Is it because they're picking on these residents, or is it because that's where the 9-11 calls originate? Um, the data argues for the latter, that the police are responding to complaints coming from the residents of these neighborhoods, and that's why they spend so much time there. Um, there is a over-policing argument that's been made, and the empirical data, I think, largely dispels it. Uh, and, and here's how, and it's, when you ask, if, if, when you ask people who attacked you, um, the police write down the race of the assailant. And they keep those records. And if over-policing was going on, you would see police arresting blacks, say, at a higher rate than they are named as the assailant by victims of crimes. You don't find that. You find pretty much parity in those two figures, which I think speaks to uh, refute this argument that these neighborhoods are being over-policed. Um, I think that these um, that the police are in these communities for legitimate reasons, and that most of the law-abiding residents in these communities, and most of the residents in these communities are law-abiding, um, want the police there to protect them because they are the primary victims of the criminals in these communities. Cool. Yeah, I would agree with that, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> of course, people in communities want police. People in communities, black, white, or whatever, want to be safe. They don't want to be victims of crime. The problem that we have in black communities is both over-policing and under-policing. It's under-policing on serious crimes. You look at the homicide solve rates in black communities, they are extremely low. Chicago, one of the worst in the country, it is not by accident that it also has a serious problem with violence, because violence thins out of control when homicides don't get solved. Um, I can tell you, living in, in Bed-Stuy, which is a poor black community, we see both. We see citizens who are walking and minding their business, who are constantly stopped by police. Um, my neighbor rode a bike to the bodega. The police stopped him. They beat him. It was caught on camera. They arrested him for resisting arrest, no original charge, no reason to stop him. He goes to jail. He loses his job because he can't report to work and 
people like that don't have jobs where you can just miss work. You have to be there as an hourly worker. So we know that there's constant contact. We know that a federal judge in New York City found stop and frisk unconstitutional because black and brown people who are simply walking down the street were being stopped for no reason. They're finding no weapons on them. They're finding no reason to charge them. What black people want in their communities is the same type of policing that most white Americans experience. They don't want less policing. They want to be treated with dignity. They want to be able to walk around their neighborhoods like free citizens. They don't want to be stopped without reasonable cause. And if that was the relationship that black Americans have with police, you wouldn't see a friction. But that is not the experience in many communities. And that's the difference. Um, when you look at police response times for serious crimes in black communities, it takes police longer to get into those communities for real crimes. So the sense is, is that if someone is hurting me, I cannot get the police to investigate. I can't get the police to solve this crime. But if I'm just walking around minding my business, and you've had black police officers who have worked uh, within these organizations say that that's, that is what they are told to do, that they, um, particularly because of the need to collect policing data, that they need to make a lot of stops. And who are you going to make a lot of stops with? White, powerful people who can go call the mayor and complain? or a poor black person that everybody thinks is probably doing something wrong in the first place. So I, I think that um, this narrative that somehow black people enjoy being victimized or don't, and I'm not saying that's what you're saying, but that's commonly out there that black people don't want police in their neighborhoods is not true. They want the same policing that white Americans expect. They want to be treated with dignity by the people whose salary that they're paying and Lord knows they don't want to be treated with suspicion in the communities that they live. So Jason, I, I got a direct audience question for you. Um, doesn't color blindness help to maintain racialized power structures in the way that they have long existed? Doesn't color blindness help to maintain racialized power structures? In other words, is, is colorblindness actually doing the reverse of what you, you explained? Is it somehow actually creating the structures that, and perpetuating those? Well, I guess I'd need some of those terms further <laughs> defined, but I'd, I'll say this. Whatever power structures, racialized power structures exist, they didn't stop Obama from being elected and then reelected. Um, and he's just the culmination of, I think, a civil rights vision that started with King, which is that what blacks need in this country to advance socioeconomically is political power. The civil rights movement focused on achieving political power. And to a large extent, um, they succeeded. The, the, the number of black elected officials in this country rose from something like 1,500 to more than 10,000 between 1970 and 2010. Um, black elected officials uh, running cities, big urban cities from mayors to police commissioners to school superintendents, um, it's happened. The socioeconomic progress that we thought would follow that or that the civil rights leaders thought would follow has not panned out. But I don't think it's due to a lack of political power or being able to integrate political, not being able to integrate political institutions. 
that has happened. And, and it speaks to a larger point, which is that Obama came in office with these crazy expectations. There was no way he was going to be able to meet them. Um, and it was unfair that that much pressure was put on him. But, but one reason he wasn't ever going to meet, him, meet them, at least in terms of, of, of lifting blacks as a group socioeconomically, is because I don't think that the current barriers to black socioeconomic progress are political barriers. Black people don't need an Obama in place to get done what they need to get done to advance socioeconomically. Um, if, if it happens, it's fine, it's nice. If you have a black governor or a black mayor or a black police commissioner or so forth, fine, but I don't think it's an essential element for a group to rise socioeconomically in this country. I think that's borne out um, by the, the patterns that other groups in this country, uh, racial and ethnic groups, have followed, not only in, in the US, but in other countries around the world. So uh, Nicole, you're going to get the last word. Uh, and so you have two choices. So uh, you can respond to uh, the, the Jason's point here. Or um, there is a PS307 alum in the audience who gave the year of graduation. I'd never do that, by the way. <laughs> who's a product of Farragut uh, Housing Projects and wants to, you to reflect on choosing uh, your, uh, your article on choosing a school for my daughter in a segregated city. So you can either respond or you can do a reflection on your own writing. It's totally up to you, but you get the last word. Okay. I mean, well, one, I actually agree with Jason on this, is that um, political empowerment has not led to the economic empowerment. And that is actually where Dr. King was going before he got assassinated, and I think that's the battle still to be won. Where's the, where's the 307? Hey, I would simply say uh, PS 307 is possibly the most glaring example of why race is still the problem. Because PS 307 is that rare, very resourced, majority black, poor school. My daughter learns Mandarin, she takes art, takes music, um, her grades are great. It, it is a school, it's a STEM school, it's a magnet, and those white parents will not send their children to that school and they live right across the street from it, right? So you think about the arguments. Um, people say they want neighborhood schools unless the neighborhood school is black, then they want choice. Then they want to be able to go wherever they want, right? The neighborhood school is white, they don't want choice. They want to go to their neighborhood school. What's Always the case is people want to avoid going to school with kids who are in that school. And the reason I feel so passionately about it is I was that kid. I was the poor black kid that people didn't want in their school. And I can tell you, and I, and I don't say this uh, with any hubris whatsoever, I was smarter than most of the white kids in the school that I was bused in. I'm probably more successful than almost all of them. Um, and they did not want me there. And I think all the time about those little black and brown kids that nobody wants their little kids around. What could they become? What could they be if we actually invested in them the way that we invest in white children? We haven't done that. I would love, I would love black kids. I, I know how hard it was to have to ride a bus two hours a day, to go into an all-white school where the kids never really felt I fit in, where everyone assumed I was dumber than them, even though I wasn't. I know how hard that was. I would love if we lived in a country where black kids could just go to black schools and that they would get the same things that white kids could get, because I think that's very empowering. That's part of the reason my daughter is in a black school, because I know how hard it was not to be in one. But we don't have that country yet. And while we keep trying to figure out if we're gonna get to be that country or not, 
There's kids in those classrooms right now. There's kids in those classrooms right now who are being deprived of the things that every person in this room will fight tooth and nail to guarantee their own child. And that's what I see my role as. I have some power. I have a voice. That mom in the project who's working at Popeyes, nobody listens to her. I can be her voice, though. And I'm not going to be in denial about some kumbaya vision of America that doesn't exist. Because you go in those schools and you go in those projects and you know that it doesn't exist. But those kids have no less potential than I had. What they don't have is opportunity. So, thank you. So to call and Jason, what I've heard is there's common ground on political empowerment and policing and respecting <laughs> community. I heard some common ground in the education space. I think for us, this is a great opportunity for us to hear both sides of very important issues around race in America. And on behalf of the Howenstein Center and the Common Ground Initiative and the Grand Valley State Division of Inclusion and Equity and the community of Grand Rapids, we'd like to say thank you for bringing your perspectives here. That was Nicole Hannah-Jones and Jason Riley discussing race and the American dream at the Howenstein Center on January 17th, 2017. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadarj Bar and Rachel Bills edit the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference in the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies. And what a year it's been for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at JoeHoganCGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.